Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome again on this uh, beautiful Sunday morning. And today we're going to continue with um, Exodus chapter 26. So before we start, I'll just pray for us all. Father, thank you for a brand new day. Thank you that you care for us and you love us. Thank you that you are constantly looking after us. And we're going to learn more today about the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat and what that means for us practically as far as us being able to be free from the penalty and power of sin. And Lord, I pray you help us to understand these beautiful pictures that you've given us, which gives us more insight of you and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we learned about the Ark of the Covenant the table for the showbread, and then golden lampstand for the menorah. And in these three pieces of furniture, we see the Trinity. So the presence of God, or the Father, was above the mercy seat. The showbread represents Jesus as the bread of life, and the lampstand represents the Holy Spirit. Now, also, as we have learnt previously, The Ark of the Covenant is the most important item in the tabernacle. It's a box made of acacia wood and covered in gold. Now, you remember what the wood speaks of? It speaks of Jesus' humanity, while the gold speaks of Jesus' deity. So Jesus would be both God and man, fully man and fully God. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Now, inside the box, there were two tablets of stone on which were written the Ten Commandments. On top of the box was a lid of pure gold with two angels included in the design that faced each other on top of the lid. It was called the Mercy Seat. The blood of bulls and goats was sprinkled on the Mercy Seat to picture the forgiveness or covering or atonement of sins. Now, remember that atonement means at one with, at one meant, at one with. That is, man could be at one with God again, or man could be one with God again, or reconciled back to God. So atonement is reconciliation. For this reason, the Ark of the Covenant is the most important part of the tabernacle and would also become the most important part of the temple. Why? Because it's above the mercy seat that God met with the people. It's via the mercy seat that people could have access to God. So it's really important that we come to understand that the mercy seat was the only way to come into God's presence. Now, we can go into the New Testament to find out why. The word mercy seat is the same Greek word translated as propitiation. Propitiation means payment. So mercy seat is the same as payment. Jesus' blood shed for us when he died on the cross is the payment for our sins. Without this payment for all the times we have done wrong things, we are all guilty before God. We have all broken God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, And all of us deserve to die. Now hang on, you say, I'm a good person, especially compared to Hitler and 
Stalin and, you know, those nasty people. But we shouldn't be thinking like that. We need to be thinking more along the lines of how good I am not rather than how bad I am. We all need to compare ourselves to God who is perfect. So let's take a little test. We can ask ourselves these questions about the Ten Commandments. Have I ever told a lie? Have I ever stolen anything, including something simple like downloading music from the internet? Have I ever been disobedient to my parents or blasphemed God's name? You may say, well, I haven't murdered, but Jesus said that if you hate someone, then you have murdered. Because it's not only our actions which are judged, but so are our thoughts, intents and motives. Now, in the same way, Jesus said that if you have lusted, then you have committed adultery in your heart. The Tenth Commandment is also about our heart's desires when it says, do not covet, which means to want something that isn't yours. So you see that all humanity is in big trouble. We have all lied, stolen, lusted, coveted, hated. It's part of our human nature. Now, the Bible says that the penalty for breaking any one of God's laws is death. Now, that's a bit rough, you say? Well, Romans 6.23, for the wages or consequences of sin is death. So sin is defined as breaking any of God's laws, whether it be by thought, word, or deed. Sinning is rebelling against God. Now, the penalty, again, the penalty or fine for breaking God's perfect law is death, defined as eternal separation from God in hell. So that's the death the Bible is talking about here. The penalty or fine for breaking God's perfect law is eternal separation from God. And we're going to talk about that more soon. Now, if we are honest with ourselves, then we will understand that we have all broken God's perfect moral law, the Ten Commandments, at least once. This makes us guilty of breaking God's perfect moral law and therefore destined to spend eternity suffering in the lake of fire which is also called the second death. In fact, the Bible clearly teaches, in several places, that every person has broken God's law. There is not one person who hasn't. In contrast, God is so good that he is perfect, and so he will not accept anyone into his perfect heaven unless they also are perfect. Now, as we have already discussed, can any person be perfect? Well. No. And why not? Why is it that we are like the way we are? Why is it that doing the wrong thing comes naturally for us? Why is that? Well, when Adam sinned in the garden, his perfect nature, he was perfect because he is created in the image of God, his perfect nature became corrupted. It was this corrupted human nature that was passed on to the rest of humanity because we are all descended from Adam and Eve. 
So now we are all born with a corrupted or sinful human nature. So what does this mean? Well, God is selfless. We are selfish. God naturally looks out for other people. We naturally look out for ourselves. God is humble. We are proud. And so it's all about the opposite. Now, we can read about this change in Adam's nature as we go back to Genesis. So I'm just going to read from Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. It says, This is the written account of the descendants of Adam. When God created human beings, he made them to be like himself in the likeness of God. He created them male and female. He blessed them and called them mankind or human. Now, I want you to notice in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, that when God created human beings, he made them to be like himself in the likeness of God. Now, continuing in verse 3, when Adam was 130 years old, he became the father of a son who was just like him, that is, in his or Adam's very image. He named his son Seth. So, notice in verse 3, it says about Adam, he became the father of a son who was just like him, that is, in Adam's very image. So, not in God's image, but in Adam's image. So, there's been a change. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God, but everybody else is born in the image of Adam, which is a corrupted version of God's image or nature. So yes, we are still born or made in the image of God, but it's a corrupted version. The image has been corrupted because of sin. This means that instead of wanting naturally to do the things that please God and seek a love relationship with God like Adam and Eve did in the beginning, instead, we naturally want to run from God and do things that please ourselves instead of pleasing God. This rebellion against God is called sin. Now Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now coming back to the mercy seat, this explains why the mercy seat is so important. It represents Jesus' death on the cross as the payment for the penalty of all the sins of the whole world. The single payment the one and only, the once and for all payment for the penalty of all the sins of the whole world. Now here's an example to help explain this. If I do something wrong and break a law and I receive a fine of $100 million or life in prison, I am in big trouble because I can't pay the fine. I'll be forever condemned by the law that I broke until I can pay the fine. And since I can't pay the fine, then I'll be forever condemned by the law that I broke. And what this means is that I'll spend the rest of my life in prison. I will be separated from the rest of humanity. I'll never be a free man again. I'll always be under condemnation. Sin brings separation. But what if some person comes into the courtroom and offers to pay my fine on my behalf. 
the judge will say, the fine or penalty is paid, so case dismissed. You can go free. You are no longer condemned. You now have right standing with the law. So the mercy seat represents Jesus stepping into God's courtroom and paying our fine or penalty. For us, the fine is death. So Jesus gave his life for us so that we could live, so that we could go free. Now, is this all that God wanted to do? Or was there a bigger picture? Well, there's actually a bigger picture here. Our freedom from condemnation was not the most important thing that God was trying to achieve. That was just a means to an end. There was a reason why God wants to set us free from the condemnation of the law. It's so our love relationship with Him can be restored. Before Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they loved God perfectly. Their love relationship with God was a whole point of their existence. They were completely satisfied and happy and content there in the Garden of Eden, just talking with and loving God. Their primary or most important goal in life was to love God. The whole world was perfect, no sickness, death or sadness. They didn't do anything wrong. They naturally, they wanted to obey all the commandments because that's all they wanted to do. But when they sinned, they were separated from God because they were no longer perfect. Also, the whole creation was cursed, and for the first time, there was death in the world. The relationship or friendship with God was broken. But God had a plan. And this is a fantastic thing. Right from the start, God set up animal sacrifices, where people would confess their sins over the animal, which in effect was them transferring their sins to the animal. Now this is just a picture, right? So the person's sins is symbolically transferred over to the animal. Now because the person's sin was transferred to the animal, the animal was now guilty and therefore had to die. And this is the important part. The innocent animal, the animal who had done no wrong, was killed in place of the man because the animal had now become sinful. It now bore the man's sin. This is a beautiful picture of how God would punish sin without punishing us sinners. Again, this is an awesome picture of how God punished sin without punishing sinners, us humans. Of course, the death of the animal could never bring true forgiveness. It was only ever a picture. But a good picture because it reminded people again and again of the serious consequences of sin. It all pointed to Jesus' death on the cross. Our sins would literally be placed on him. He would literally, not symbolically, become sin and God would literally punish him instead of us. Jesus was the real deal, the once and for all sacrifice for our sins that all the other animal sacrifices pointed to. 
So how do we receive this gift of forgiveness that results in us being reconciled to God, our friendship with God restored? Well, first we need to recognize that a human nature is flawed or evil, it's corrupt, that by nature it hates God and only wants to please itself. We are all selfish by nature. In contrast, God is selfless. We need to decide to stop living the old sinful life, seeking to please ourselves, and instead follow God's ways and choose to love Him with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, and seek to do the things that please God. This is called repentance, a change of direction. We do a U-turn in life. We do a 180. We agree with God that His ways are right and our ways are wrong. We make a decision to leave our old life behind. We also need to understand that Jesus' death on the cross was the payment for our sins. And if I accept and put my trust in this free gift of forgiveness, then I can be declared innocent or not guilty in God's sight. The Heavenly Father will see me as being perfect. He will adopt me into his family and I will spend eternity with him. It will be just incredibly glorious. No more death, pain, sadness or sickness. But wait, there's more. God won't leave me as I am. He will literally come and live in me. My body becomes a temple of the living God. Also, God gives me a new heart and a new nature with desires that want to please Him. In fact, Jesus wants to live His life through us, through me. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 says, My old self, my sinful nature, has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So my old self has been crucified with Christ. I am no longer a slave to its power. I can now do the right thing. God has given me the power to do the right thing. I don't have to do the wrong thing anymore. Remember, God has freed me from both the penalty and the power of sin. So what this means is that living as a Christian is not just about trying our best to be good, but rather about learning to trust God and enjoy a beautiful relationship with God. God does in us what we cannot do for ourselves. I'm going to repeat that because it's so important. God does in us what we cannot do for ourselves. So, As we grow to love and trust God more and more, obeying Him becomes easier and easier. Why? Because the more I grow to love Him, the more I want to follow and obey Him. God transforms my character to become more like Him. God changes me from the inside out. It's something that only He can do. By ourselves, we are powerless to change our desires and motives. It is possible to change our behavior. I can really try to change myself, change my behavior, but I can't change who I am on the inside. I can't change my 
desires, my natural desires, my natural inclinations. But God promises to do just that. He will make me beautiful again on the inside, just like he is, just like Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden before they sinned. So that's a summary there of why the Ark of the Covenant was the most important piece of furniture in the tabernacle and also would be in the temple. It's because it represents our access to God. It represents Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, which makes the way. And we're going to learn more about that as we go on today. So, chapter 26 in Exodus. Now, remember that every part of the tabernacle points to Jesus. And the first part we're going to learn about is the roof of the tent or tabernacle. There's going to be four layers or coverings, with the inside one described first and the outer one described last. So I'm just going to go through what these four layers are. And as we go through, we'll see how they point to Jesus and the plan of salvation. So the first layer or inside covering, the one that you would see as you walk into the tabernacle, is a fine linen with embroidered angels or cherubim. So it's a beautiful white cloth, and on it is embroidered or woven, it's woven with angels or cherubim. Now the second layer is goat's hair, it's typically black, and that's in verses 7 to 13. The first layer is verses 1 to 6. The third layer is the ram skins dyed red, verse 14. And the fourth layer is badger skins, verse 14. So, let's start in verse 1, and we'll go through the first layer, this white linen, which is embroidered with artistic designs of cherubim or angels. So here we go. Exodus chapter 26, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread. With artistic designs of cherubim, or angels, you shall weave them. The length of each curtain shall be twenty-eight cubits, the width of each curtain four cubits, and each one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. Coupled means joined sewn together. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain on the selvage of one set, and likewise you should do on the outer edge of the other curtain on the second set. Fifty loops you shall make in that one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is on the edge of the second set, that the loops may be clasped to one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that it may be one tabernacle. So right from the start, verse 1, Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains. So the tabernacle is a tent with uh, walls. We'll find that the walls are going to be made of boards, which are put together. And it's got this series of four coverings. It's quite elaborate. And The plans for the tabernacle were given to Moses from the inside out. So starting with the interior furniture and then working out. So just as an application, we usually approach God 
from the outside in. But God wants us to see it as being from the inside out. Why? Because he works in his people according to the same pattern. He changes us from the inside out. Now, as an aside here, what does the number 10 mean in the Bible? Well, it's been said that 10 is the number of human responsibility, as seen in the Ten Commandments and the Ten Plagues on Pharaoh's nation due to his failure to respond to God's command to let his people go. Now, also in verse 1, it says, A fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread. So the embroidery is of blue, purple, and scarlet thread. So the curtains, which would serve as the visible roof of the tabernacle, the one you'd see when you were inside, were to be made of four colours, white, blue, purple, and scarlet. The number four draws one's mind to the four Gospels. Now, the Gospels can be represented by colours, and this is quite interesting. So the four colours in the first layer of the roof of the tabernacle So, Luke speaks of the righteous humanity of Jesus, his perfection, which would be typified by the fine white linen. Now, John portrays Jesus as deity, as God, and that's typified by the blue color, the color of heaven. Matthew writes of Jesus as the king of the Jews, and purple is the color of royalty. Mark speaks of Jesus as a suffering servant, and we see that in the color scarlet or red. Now, the Hebrew word tolaath can be translated either of two ways. Scarlet or worm. Now, that sounds strange, but why? Well, because in Old Testament times, when people wanted to dye something scarlet or red, They would dip the material in ground-up worms, these special worms, and the material would take on a scarlet colour. Now, this is not just here, but also in Psalm 22 verse 6, it says, I am a worm and not a man. Now, this was prophetically speaking of Jesus on the cross. Now, that's... I just quoted from Psalm chapter 22, verse 6. And the word used there for worm is the word tolaath. A most fitting word. Why? Because to reproduce, the tolaath, or worm, would fasten itself on the limb of a tree and die in the process of giving birth. As it died, it left a red spot that, according to the New International Bible Encyclopedia, turned white after three days and flaked off like snow. Now, Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 says, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. The picture is perfect. Jesus willingly allowed himself to be fastened to a tree that we might be born into his family. He sacrificed his life that we might live. Now, three days later, he rose again and our sin that was scarlet was washed white as snow. Remember the red spot after three days turned white and then flaked off? It makes sense that scarlet was one of the colours in the tabernacle and in the clothing of the priest. 
Now also in verse 1 it says, With artistic designs of cherubim or angels you shall weave them. So the designs on this covering were visible only from the inside of the tabernacle. And it's like a picture of heaven. If you're in heaven, you'd see lots of angels flying around, or just around. And that's exactly what you saw when you're inside the tabernacle. It's a picture of heaven. Now, verses 2 and 3, it says, The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the width of each curtain 4 cubits. That's approximately 14 meters by 2 meters each curtain. And every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, or so on to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled, or so on to one another. So, basically, you have ten curtains, each one being 42 feet or 14 metres long, and six feet or two metres wide. They were first joined in sets of five, sewn together in sets of five, and then joined together to produce a covering that is in total 60 feet or 20 metres by 42 feet or 14 metres. Now, this fabric is in two sections. And it's just like the Ten Commandments are written on two tablets of stone. It could be, and this is a bit of a speculation here, it could be that there was still a gap between the curtains because although the law of the Lord is perfect, it is impossible to live up to, leaving an impassable gap for any who have tried. And we'll come back to that. Verses 4 to 6, And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain on the edge of one set, and likewise you shall do on the outer edge on the other curtain of the second set. Fifty loops you shall make in one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is on the end of the second set, that the loops may be clasped to one another. And you shall make fifty clasps out of gold, and couple the curtains together with the clasps, so that it may be one tabernacle. So, make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains together with the clasps. The sets of five curtains were not to be sewn to each other, but joined by a system of loops on the fabric and gold clasps to link the loops from one set of five curtains to the other set of five curtains. Now, number 50. What does the number 50 mean? 50 is the number of salvation, as some say, as seen in the year of Jubilee, which occurred every 50 years, when all debts were cancelled. And you'll find that in Leviticus chapter 25, verse 10. And also, Noah's ark was 50 cubits wide, and that is also a picture of salvation. That's Genesis 6.15. Now the curtains were held together not with fasteners of wood covered with gold, but by pure gold, just as our lives come together and make sense, not through a mixture of our efforts at keeping God's law, but solely through his salvation by his grace. And verse 6, So that it may be one tabernacle, so as I was saying before, there's this principle of unity, so that it may be one tabernacle. God is using it as a picture of unity. So the Bible speaks of unity in diversity. 
It's the same idea of Romans 12.5, which says, We, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now we get to the second covering, which is the goat's hair. And the second, third and fourth coverings will be the same dimensions. It says in verse 7 through 13, You shall also make curtains of goat's hair to be a tent over the tabernacle. You shall make eleven curtains. The length of each curtain shall be thirty cubits, and the width of each curtain four cubits, and the eleven curtains shall all have the same measurements. And you shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and you shall double over the sixth curtain at the forefront of the tent. You shall make fifty loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set, and fifty loops on the edge of the curtain of the second set, and you shall make fifty bronze clasps. Put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together, that it may be one. The remnant that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle, and a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side of what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. So these goat's hair curtains or roof of this tabernacle, instead of 10, there's now 11. And they're a bit wider as well. So basically, if you think of it hanging over the edges all the way around. Now, what color were these goat skins? Well, Middle Eastern goats are usually black, so this would most likely be a black goat hair covering, or goat skin covering. And you shall make 50 bronze clasps, and put the clasps into the loops, and couple the tent together, that it may be one. So, not gold, but now brass. So think of it, black is a picture of sin, and sin must be judged. Brass means judgment, or represents judgment. And verse 12 and 13, The remnant that remains of the curtains of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle, and a cubit on one side and a cubit on the other side of what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it. So, basically this goat's hair covering was wider by about a metre. So you had like half a metre going over the edge, and it completely covered the fine linen covering. So the fine linen layer, which had the cherubim or angels embroidered into it, was completely covered, completely blocked out from the outside by this dark covering of goat's hair. You couldn't see it. The only way you could see it, this picture of heaven, is to go in through the door of the tabernacle. And so the picture here is the only way that we can get into or see heaven is through the door of the tabernacle. And the door is Christ. Come back to that later. Verse 14. You shall also make a covering of ram skins dyed red for the tent. Now, why ram skins dyed red? Well, we can go back to Genesis chapter 22, where it tells us that in obedience to God's command, Abraham took his son Isaac up Mount Moriah And guess what? That's the very place that Jesus would later be crucified. And what did God tell Abraham to do with Isaac, his son? He told him to sacrifice him. 
So here is Abraham ready to plunge the knife into the chest of his son. Abraham was interrupted by God and told to sacrifice the ram that was caught in a nearby thicket instead. Now to this day it is a ram's horn or shofar which is blown at the year of Jubilee because the ram's horn is a picture of grace. Now, also in verse 14, it says, and a covering of badger skins above that. So, when these four layers of curtains were laid one on another, the result was a very dry, but very dark tent. So it kept all the weather out, but it was very dark inside. You know, solid boards around the outside and these four layers on the roof. The only light that we would you'd see in there would be from the lampstand, which we learned about last week. Now, in the Middle East, badger skins, this very top layer, this layer that everyone would see, are considered, even today, to be common and ugly. So, with a badger skin covering the other three layers, all the other people, all they would see is just an ugly and common tabernacle. It's ugly and common tent. It's like you had a wonderful house and you covered it with black rubbish bags. Black plastic rubbish bags. Why? Why would God do this? Why not make it beautiful? Well, remember that this is pointing to Jesus. Jesus, God with us. Now, what does Isaiah 53 2 say about Jesus? It says that there is no form or comeliness that when we see him we should desire him. And yet the beauty within him broke through, his deity broke through on the day he was on Mount Hermon, when he was transfigured, when the glory of his deity burst through his humanity. And that's how we see him now, because he is in heaven. Well, we can't see him now yet, but that's how we will see him. And that's how he is now in heaven. So the humanity, the ugly normality, if you want to call it that, is gone. And we see him transfigured in heaven. The glory has burst through his humanity. So while he was on earth, all you saw was an ordinary man just like the tabernacle appeared as an ordinary tent. But on the inside, beautiful deity. Now verse 15. And for the tabernacle you shall make the boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits should be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half should be the width of each board. So each board was made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. Each board was 15 feet, that's 5 metres high, and 2 foot 3 inches which is about 75 centimetres wide. So quite a high structure. Now it says, Two tenons shall be in each board for binding one to another. Thus he shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle, and you shall make the boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side. You shall make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there should be 20 boards, and there are 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. So, each board 
rested on two sockets of silver, each socket made with one talent of silver. Now how much silver is that? Well, each of these boards was resting on a base of silver which weighed 120 kilos, approximately. Now, why silver? Well, silver is a metal associated with redemption and payment for sin. And you find that in a number of references like Exodus 21 verse 32, Leviticus chapter 5 verse 15, and Numbers 18 16, Deuteronomy 22 19. Uh, as, a, as some of them. Um, now, Jesus was betrayed for silver. Matthew 26 15. The tabernacle's foundation was silver, and this points to the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. That's why the boards were put on silver foundations, points to the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. The silver of redemption also separated the tabernacle from the dirt of the desert floor. And this is another application or illustration of the truth that Jesus' redeeming work separates us from the world. Right, verse 22. For the far side of the tabernacle westward you shall make six boards, and you shall also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle. They shall be coupled together at the bottom, and they shall be coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus it shall be for both of them. They shall be for the two corners. So there were to be twenty boards on the north, twenty boards on the south, six boards on the west, and two corner boards to tie the three walls together, leaving the east side open. So when Christ comes, from what direction is he going to come? Does anyone know? Well, the scriptures clearly say he's going to come from the east. Through which gate will he enter Jerusalem? It's going to be the eastern gate. So this tabernacle, right from the beginning, is already pointing to his coming, his second coming. Alright, verse 25. So there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, sixteen sockets, two sockets under each of the boards. And you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the side of the tabernacle for the far side westward. The middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards from end to end. You shall overlay the boards with gold, make their rings of gold as holders for the bars and overlay the bars with gold. So, each of these bars was made of acacia wood, and it was overlaid or covered in gold. Now, the bars ran the entire length of each side, and linking together each board into one wall or one system. What's interesting is the middle bar passed through the middle of the boards from end to end. So the other poles, they went through rings but the middle pole went through the board internally. So the middle bar was invisible. Now, remember this is talking about being one, that the tabernacle might be one. So there's an invisible and a visible aspect to spiritual unity among God's people. And the invisible part is the work of the Spirit in our hearts, changing us. Right, verse 30. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern which you were shown on the mountain. So, this is a repeated phrase, according to its pattern which you were shown on the mountain, and we see it in Exodus 
25 verse 9, 25 verse 40, and here in 26 verse 30. And it suggests that Moses received a vision of exactly how the tabernacle should look. And now he's communicating this vision to the craftsman who did the actual building. So the application is, God works in the same way in today's leaders. He gives them a vision of what his work should be, and the leader passes it on to others who will do much of the actual work. Alright, verse 31. You shall make a veil of blue, purple and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. So remember, everything in the tabernacle points to Jesus. And we don't need to speculate or guess what the veil means because the book of Hebrews makes it clear. So I'm going to read to you Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20. It says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh. So what is it? The veil represents Jesus' flesh. Therefore, the colors are again fitting. Blue is the color of heaven. Jesus came from heaven and is in heaven right now. Purple speaks of royalty. Jesus is the king of kings. Blue and purple were linked together because Jesus never lost sight of the fact that his kingdom was a heavenly kingdom. Now, what's most important? Our present comfort? Or how we will be in heaven? How are we going to function in heaven? Well, Jesus wants us to enjoy heaven for eternity. And the way that happens is that we are prepared now. So if things don't work out the way we think they should, we need to keep this in mind. There's a bigger picture. The scarlet, which speaks or represents the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, it reminds us that the one who laid down his life will continue to do what is best for us. Because Jesus' plan for us is not just on this earth, but for eternity. He's doing what's best for us, for eternity. And the final color there is the white linen. It speaks of righteousness. Our human nature is depraved, infected by sin. Jesus, on the other hand, lived such a righteous life that Pilate could find no fault in him. Luke 23 verse 4. And even Judas had to admit, I have portrayed innocent blood. Matthew 24 verse 7. Now verse 31, again it says, It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim, or angels. So, like the curtains that made up the roof of the tent, cherubims or angels were to be embroidered into the veil, speaking of the angelic presence in the heavenly realms. In verse 32 and 33, you shall hang it upon four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. The hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil. Verse 33b, 
Well, the second part of verse 33, The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. So the veil separated the tent into two compartments. The first compartment was a holy place, which was a larger room, which you entered first. And in there, you would find the table of showbread, the lampstand, and the altar of incense. The second compartmental room was the holy place, a smaller room with the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I want to come back to the veil. What does the Bible teach about the veil? Well, the veil was a barrier, and no priest could go beyond the veil into the most holy place except the high priest. And he could only enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he had to take a sacrifice and do all this stuff. The second thing is that spiritually speaking, in dying for our sins, Jesus with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And that's Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12. Also, in the temple, this veil was torn from top to bottom when Jesus died, when he gave up his spirit. And that's Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one. And this shows that through his death, there is no longer a barrier to the most holy place. The way is open. Now the most holy place is open to us. And I'm going to read to you Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 20. Brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil, that is, his flesh. So the torn veil that Matthew 27 verse 51 talks about also symbolizes the broken body of Jesus through which we have access to the most holy place. So what is the application for us? Well, just as the beautiful veil which portrayed Jesus so perfectly separated the priests from the holy of holies where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt, it is the very loveliness and beauty of Jesus which keeps people from experiencing the glory of God because compared to him even our most noble attempts at righteousness are as filthy rags and you read that in Isaiah 64 verse 6 the veil or curtain between the holy place and the most holy place represents our sin which separates us from God Jesus body represented by the veil was broken for us when he died on the cross at the same time, the veil in the temple was also ripped from top to bottom, signifying that the way to God's presence was now open. The penalty and power of sin have been dealt with once and for all. We can now be declared innocent if we have accepted God's free gift of forgiveness that results in eternal life. So that's wonderful. All right, verse 34, Exodus 26. You shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy. You shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south and you should put the table on the north side. So the ark of the covenant is here called the ark of the testimony and it's behind the veil in the most holy place. It's the only piece of furniture in there. Now, 
set the table outside the veil. So the table of showbread was on the north side of the tabernacle. That's on the right as you enter the tabernacle. And the lampstand was toward the south, which is on the left. And you have the altar of incense right outside the veil. Now, an application for us. The furniture in the holy place spoke of three obligations of walking with God, three responsibilities that we have. They are prayer, represented by the altar of incense, fellowship, represented by the table of showbread, and to receive illumination from the Holy Spirit, which is the lampstand. Right, verse 36. You shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. So this has the same color scheme as the veil which separates the holy place from the most holy place. It's a white cloth embroidered with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. And it's the only way to enter the tabernacle. There's only one way in. So the application for us, the tabernacle had only one door, for Jesus is the single door, John chapter 10 verse 9. He is the only way to the Father, Acts 4 verse 12. It's like God is saying, I'm going to keep it real simple, real basic. There is only one way to heaven. There's just one door. It's my son. It's Jesus. All right, let's move on to verse 37. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be gold and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. So the door was to be held up by five pillars because five is the number of? Five is the number of grace. And it is only by grace that we are saved. Ephesians 2.8 but notice that the five pillars were to be held with sockets of brass. Brass is a metal of judgment. It represents judgment. So the door would point to the fact that although grace is free, it's not cheap. Although grace is free, it's not cheap. It costs Jesus everything to save us. Jesus absorbed the judgment that should have been ours when he gave his life, that we might live. Jesus paid a debt that he didn't owe. We had a debt we could not pay. Now, to finish, I just want to go through Psalm 85 verses 7 to 11. And the reason is that there's an awesome application here of what the Ark of the Covenant represents. So let me just read to you Psalm 85, verses 7 to 11. It says, Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Listen carefully to what the Lord is saying, for he speaks peace to his faithful people. But let them not return to their foolish ways. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, so our land will be filled with his glory. Unfailing love or mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth springs up from the earth and righteousness smiles down from heaven. 
So I just want to especially look at verses 10 and 11. Firstly, verse 10, it says, Unfailing love or mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Now, what seemed impossible to us, God has done. Truth and righteousness is the law of God, the Ten Commandments inside the Ark of the Covenant. They are God's standard of moral perfection. Now contrast this with the unfailing love and peace, which is pictured by the mercy seat and demonstrated when Jesus died as a payment for the penalty of our sins. And God has brought these two things together. God has brought sinful humanity back into a love relationship with him. Mercy and truth have met together, and it meets together at the mercy seat. How do we receive it? Well, it depends on each individual person accepting this wonderful free gift of forgiveness and making the choice to repent. Now, verse 11 of Psalm 85, it says, Truth springs up from the earth and righteousness smiles down from heaven. So, truth is springing up from the earth. Why? Why does it say that? Well, as an application, because God lives in us, his truth dwells in our hearts and we become more and more like him. So, truth is springing up from the earth. Now, the next bit says, And righteousness smiles down from heaven. Now, how does God see us? How does the Father see us? Well, I am in Christ. And because of that, God sees me as being perfect. I am justified. It's just if I'd never sinned. So, without the mercy seat, without Jesus coming to earth to live a perfect life and then dying on the cross as a payment for our sins, it would only be the law in the box with no covering, no mercy seat. Now, You've probably seen this in the movies, like Raiders of the Lost Ark and other ones like that. If you looked inside the ark, you would end up dead. And in the Old Testament, those who looked inside the ark ended up dead. Why is this? Well, it's because the law, the perfect law of God, brings death. Now, it's not because it's bad but because none of us can keep it. We are all guilty before God. So without Jesus, without the mercy seat, we would all be judged by the perfect law and end up condemned. That's representing looking into the Ark of the Covenant without the mercy seat there. But praise God that Jesus did come and die so that we can approach God via the mercy seat with confidence and boldness to find help in time of need. But, unfortunately, there will be those who refuse to accept that their human nature is corrupted and sinful and that they are lawbreakers who deserve death. Or, they understand that, but they just refuse to repent and they love their sin rather than eternal life. Now, for them, it's like removing the mercy seat and looking into the ark at the Ten Commandments. They are putting aside the grace of God and they are inviting condemnation upon themselves. They are inviting God to judge them by the Ten Commandments. So, verse to finish, Romans chapter 11, verse 22. Notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe towards those who disobeyed, but kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. 
So I'll read that again. Notice how God is both kind and severe. He is severe toward those who disobeyed, but kind to you if you continue to trust in his kindness. So when we trust in God, we are trusting in his kindness. Not in our goodness, but his kindness, his grace. It's only in Jesus, our mercy seat, that we can find mercy or unfailing love. When a person refuses to trust in God, they will experience the severe condemnation of the law. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your kindness. I thank you that your kindness is available for every single person if we would just look to you and receive your kindness, receive your grace, receive your mercy, receive the forgiveness that you have made available to us at such a great cost. And Lord, you've gone to great lengths to show us this picture from animal sacrifices to the Ark of the Covenant to the design of the tabernacle itself. Everything points towards you. Everything is telling the story of salvation. Lord, help us not to close our ears. Help us to listen. Help us to humble ourselves and come to you and receive the forgiveness so we won't be judged by the Ten Commandments. Instead, we will be forgiven. Our sins have been removed. The blood of Jesus is the payment for my sin so I can go free from God's courtroom. I thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.